All right, amen to that. Indeed, Jesus is our foundation, past, present, future. Um, to underline that reality, there are all kinds of songs around Christmas time in the Bible song of Mary, song of Zechariah, song of the angels, song of the Old Testament prophets. And after Jesus is born, there is one final song recorded in the scriptures. Uh, but I want to observe that there's a certain danger now that we're a handful of days past Christmas of um, putting all the Christmas stuff back in the box, um, maybe kind of early. Has, have people like put their Christmas tree away, packed up their green and red decorations yet? Some of us have. We took down our Christmas tree yesterday. It was starting to be a biological hazard, like you would touch it and I could draw blood. Uh, but spiritually speaking, uh, we ought not to put the reality of Jesus' God-made flesh back into the box. Like, that is the foundation of salvation, that God became one of us, and the truth that 365 days a year, every year, we need to be standing solidly on. Um, so I don't blame the Bible for this, but it's a little bit of a danger, a spiritual danger that the Bible invites because there are only two brief scenes in the scripture between the day, Christmas, the day Jesus was born and Jesus' adult ministry as a grown man. I mean, it's one of the spots that, like, probably ask God someday on the other side, like, could we have had a few more stories of, like, what it was like Jesus as a kid or what he was like as an adolescent? How does it work if you're the son of God and a seventh grader at the same time? Like, wouldn't you love to see that movie? But the, <laughs> the first scene that happens 40 days after Jesus is born happens at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, 40 days after a child was born, there was a little postpartum purification that needed to happen for the family, and an offering that was made. And interestingly, kind of the regular offering, the Bible tells us Joseph and Mary didn't provide it. Instead, they provided a very small offering to birds because they just didn't have the money or the resources. Um, Jesus was not born into a lovely suburban house. He wasn't born into a great city. Uh, he was born into a situation of poverty. Um, here's a picture of an artist's rendition of what happened at the temple. There was a man, we don't necessarily know, you know he was an old man, but seems, seems like probably he was, named Simeon. And he had been waiting, God had told him, that his eyes would see the Messiah. So the song we're about to hear comes from probably this older man at the temple. Anytime I think about Simeon, especially this time of year, uh, some other images come to mind as well. Um, this is like a New Year's image, you know, when it's New Year's Eve, newspapers and magazines, websites are putting out these pictures of like the old year represented by an old man and the new year represented by a baby. Do people still know about these? I mean, newspapers in America have been doing this for like 140 years. So I scrolled through like the New York Times and the LA Times. They're all pretty depressing. Here's one from 1921. And the old man 1921 is, is like... The sign says normalcy, and he's pointing the child and be like, hey, someday things might get normal again, but they didn't while I was alive. 
If you thought people 100 years ago in the United States were living in the golden age, like, no, they lived in the same crazy times and are like, oh, we hope next year's better because this last year was full of nonsense. Here's one from two years ago, 100 years later, 2021, and 2021 is saying to 2022, or 2022 is like, I'm old already. <laughs> Do you get the message? Like, you don't even get to be a kid anymore in modern times. Like you. I feel like we as Americans usually are somewhat optimistic and hopeful, but these New Year's cartoons would indicate the opposite. By the time a year ends, we look back and rarely is the whole country just overwhelmed by a wave of gratitude of how well the last year went. If our newspapers are our permanent testimony, year after year after year in the United States of America, people are like, whew, glad we survived that. Hope this next year is nothing like that last one. If we have our feet on Jesus, this need not be our attitude. Amen? Amen. And here's why. Reading from Luke 2 now. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the restoration of Israel. And would you read the words in yellow with me? And the Holy Spirit was on him. Now it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he, Simeon, would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So moved by the Holy Spirit, he went into the temple courts. What do you know about Simeon so far? He's filled with the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, this is like 35 years before Pentecost. God's Spirit is always around. This guy is filled with the Holy Spirit, and one of the things the Spirit has told Simeon is, I am going to rescue my people, and you're going to live long enough to see the Messiah in the flesh. I mean, one of the Holy Spirit's main jobs is always to point to Jesus, and Simeon got the message. Probably he kept going to the temple uh, on this particular day. He went. Here's what happened. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him, Jesus, in his arms and praised God, saying, and this is the song of Simeon, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I kind of think of this as one of Scripture's mic drop moments. You know what a mic drop is? It's like when things go so good, you just drop the microphone and walk out the back because it's not going to get any better. And this is basically what Simeon is saying. Holy Spirit, what you have told me, you can now dismiss me from this life on earth. I can die in peace because my eyes have seen what you have promised. And indeed, for Simeon and for everybody else, to see Jesus is to see God's salvation. To see Jesus is to see God's salvation. Now, this part of Simeon's words um, are kind of famous in the history of the Christian church. If you've ever been to an evening mass or an evening prayer service or a compline or a vesper service, likely these very words will be played 
after dark as a way of saying, Lord, you can now send us all to sleep, dismiss us, because our eyes have seen your salvation. It's a really great pair for the end of life, for the end of any given day. Um, it's also often known by the Latin words for now dismiss, nunc dimittis. You don't have to remember that. But this part of Simeon's song, like, it's warm, it's lovely, it's full of hope. You can, Simeon can feel with the Messiah in his arms that the new year is going to be better than the last year because Jesus is here. And he's so content and joyful that he's like, God, I don't even need to see the next year because I trust that it's going to be good because you are with us. It's a great song. By the way, for all of us, like, probably our lives are not going to end like Simeon's where we see Jesus in the flesh and then drop the mic and this life ends. Our pattern is gonna be exactly the reverse. Uh, like I trust that when I breathe my last and if I have a painful end as an older person or through an accident, like I trust that the first thing my eyes are gonna see when I enter real life is Jesus. Not as a baby in a temple, but as the awesome Lord of heaven and earth. Simeon had it the other way. Saw Jesus in the flesh, died. We have it, we die, and we get to experience Jesus in the flesh. Quite frankly, I think that way is better. I mean, Simeon had both, honestly. But. Now, these words are comforting, kind of encouraging, but if I can use the example of an old record, the B-side of Simeon's song is kind of full of trouble. And people don't read it in churches often because it's full of trouble. Here's what Simeon said next. Now the child's father and mother marveled at what Simeon said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, here's the troubling part. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What a thing to say to a new mother, right? Like, this is why we don't play this part of Simeon's song at the end of prayer services. Like, who wants to hear that a sword is going to pierce you if you get close to Jesus? But this is what Simeon says. A uh, hundred plus years ago, there was a, an Anglican bishop England who, who wrote this about Christmas time. Every child of God, speaking of Christians, has two great marks about their life if they receive the Christ child. Number one, Christians are known by their inner peace. And number two, Christians are known by their great inner conflict and warfare. Can you feel that? Can you hear that? Now, I I tried to share a message here on Christmas Eve that was about the angels' song, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, to those on whom God's favor rests. Like, that is part of the message. You receive Jesus, and your life changes. I mean, it's like falling in love, but ten times better when you surrender your will to someone who loves you so much. You are filled with the peace that comes from surrender. But if you walk with Jesus for more than a day or a week or a month, you start to realize, like, it's hard. What Jesus is asking me to do, 
to put my feet on what Jesus calls the narrow path, to try to live up to Jesus' example and his teachings, like I struggle and wrestle and have conflict because of who Jesus is like every day of my adult Christian life. So if you are experiencing, it sounds paradoxical, great inner peace simultaneously with great inner conflict, you can take it as a sign of encouragement that your life is actually tied up with Jesus' life. Because that's how it works. Battles and blessings concurrent with one another, peace and conflict. Jesus himself was all too clear about this. When he had grown to be a man, Mark 10, 34, Jesus says this, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? Was Jesus going to do a military takeover? No, not that kind of sword. Jesus knew that actually trying to follow him and live up to his teachings would cause no end of inner struggle and wrestling and conflict to everybody who would say yes to the cause of discipleship. Again, what a thing for Simeon to say to a mother. If you can think about Mary with me for just a moment, did this really happen to her? Did her soul really get pierced because of her son? God in the flesh? Would Jesus, gentle Jesus? Isn't Jesus nice? Why would Jesus hurt his own mother? Right? The second scene that happens between the original Christmas day and Jesus grown as a man is Jesus like 12 years old in the temple. And it turns out that Jesus gets lost for three days in Jerusalem and his mom and dad are like freaking out, looking for him. And when they finally found him, adolescent Jesus says this to his parents, where did you think I would be? Didn't you know I would be in my real father's house? which is beautiful and profound, but let me tell you, if you're a 12-year-old and kind of imply to your parents that they're not your real parents, like, there will be tears and discipline. Right? I'm thinking back of some rude things I said to my own mother. Like, I took it on the chops, man, (laughs) for challenging my mom. And yet Jesus is saying to his earthly, to Mary who said yes to God, Jesus, young Jesus, you're not my real parents. Where did you think I would be? With my real father. Wow. There's another scene, as if this one weren't challenging enough in the Gospel of Mark chapter three, when Jesus started preaching and teaching as a grown man, his own biological family thought he was crazy. You can read it in Mark three if you want. They thought he was so insane that they went to forcibly remove him from what he was doing in ministry and take him back home. Mary was there. Literally, the gospel says they thought he was out of his mind. I love this. Then Jesus in Mark 3, in response to his family trying to scuttle him home, says this. In a big crowd, actually, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And then he answers his own question. Those who know the will of God and do the will of God are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Like this isn't an adolescent kid anymore. This is Jesus as 
the son of God, the Messiah, the strongest person who ever existed, saying to his biological family, my real family are my disciples, those who walk in my footsteps. My real family is not about DNA or the blood that runs through our veins. As wonderful as those family connections are, Jesus is saying there is something deeper when it comes to the relationship with me. It's knowing and doing the will of God. And watch me. From here on out, Jesus says, watch me. Do the will of God. Now, this is not to insult anybody's family or blood ties, although, you know, after holiday parties, maybe some of our, you know, took a hit. Anyway, if you can have the best of both worlds, that is, like, as a family, as siblings, along with your parents, being disciples of Christ, like, it doesn't get any better than that. But if it's going to be one or the other, it's with Jesus. Like, that's the relationship, that's the family, that's the blood that endures. It's with Jesus. Can you imagine hearing that from your own child in a public situation? Whew. Now, the sword that Jesus described, or sorry, that Simeon mentioned, I think when I was younger, I thought of it more like, you know, as a knitting needle or something small, or like if you've ever had your ears pierced, kind of like the thing that like punctures your ear. Actually, the word in Greek is like none of those things. It's like a giant military double-edged broadsword. So Simeon is not like giving this the light touch. And when Simeon says a sword will pierce you, again, it's not like a, you know, a little poke through your ear. The Greek verb for pierce actually means to like run you all the way through and transect you. And then the result of this, Simeon says over new mother Mary, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. It's kind of a weird turn of phrase. What is the thought of a heart? Like, do your heart have thoughts? You know what I'm saying? Simeon, I think, is what he's getting at is that your inner motivations, your true values, what really is important to you that maybe even sometimes you can't tell yourself like the thoughts of your hearts, all of that deep inner stuff, that is what will be revealed when you come into proximity with Jesus. And the word for revealed here is the verb for apocalypse. Like when the sword of Jesus runs you through, there will be a revelation of apocalypses. Like this is what this guy says over this new mom and her little kid. Not to belabor it, but let me retranslate. Mary, a giant sword will transect your very own soul. And similarly, the thoughts and inner motives of everybody will be revealed and wrecked because of your son. Jesus did not come to bring a sweet, quiet peace on the earth although he does bring a peace that passes understanding amidst all of this, Jesus came, his own words, to bring us a sword. So at one point, Jesus says about himself, it's not the sick who need a doctor. No, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Similarly, I didn't come for the righteous good people. I came to call sinners to repentance. 
I like to think of it this way. Jesus was identifying himself as a savior, certainly, but also as a surgeon, a person who can heal sickness. Now, how does a surgeon, looking at you, we have a surgeon in the room, how does a surgeon bring health and peace to our sick bodies? Like, if you have a tumor, what does the surgeon do to you? If you're a kid, if you're a teenager and having wisdom teeth erupt in your mouth and there's no room for your wisdom teeth, what does an oral surgeon do to bring peace to your mouth? I mean, a surgeon cuts you open, spills your blood, removes the tumor, removes the erupting teeth, sews you up, and helps you heal. Is that fair? How does a counselor interact with someone who is struggling with dark or destructive or depressive thoughts? I mean, that's so many of us. What does a counselor do? By bringing up painful, unfinished business, things of the past that have not been resolved for us that are causing us inner chaos and turmoil that need to be named, reframed, worked on and released before we can move on, hopefully with greater inner peace and health. The healing professions don't just la-la unicorns and heal. First, often, there is pain and difficult work to do before there is healing. And so Jesus brings a sword to us so that he might heal us and bring us to lasting salvation and peace. Before someone has a come to Jesus conversion moment, oftentimes they hit rock bottom and at their, are at their lowest, lowest place, if you've ever experienced that. And if you've experienced other kinds of change or transformation where you're like, God, I am giving up on doing this part of my life under my own strength, it's usually because you have reached a level of failure and frustration and inner chaos and finally the sword of Jesus is able to cut your will free from your way and release you so that you can start following Jesus' way instead. I kind of wanted to share this all on Christmas Eve but it just felt like it would have been too mean. You know what I'm saying? And the Bible gives 40 days from the song of the angels, glory to God, peace on earth, to this day, when it's like, yes, Jesus is going to be a light for all the nations, I can go in peace, and a sword is coming to pierce all of us so that we can come to Christ. Now, this next year, to broaden this out to a church-wide level, uh, it's going to be our 75th anniversary as Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church. And again, um, we would not have survived for 70 years without a lot of divine intervention, God's kindness through the years, God providing things that we never would have been smart enough or clever enough to do on our own. I see some of our um, pastors emeritus in the room this morning, Rev, Bert, uh, so many, but you guys especially, can testify to God's faithfulness through the years of this congregation. I am not on board with the spirit of the New York Times cartoons that 
we better white knuckle it because next year just might be as bad as this last year and this last year was horrible. No, there were a lot of great things here in the last year. At the same time, like the last five years have been kind of hard. Going through a pandemic, there's been significant changes around here. There's been some needling <laughs> and feeling of the edges of the sword as God does new things. While testifying to the faithfulness of the past, here's what I know. The next quarter century that we have as a congregation ought not to look like the previous quarter century. And if we have the attitude that, hey, if just the last 50 years were great and things, man, whew, like the world is changing so much, things are all downhill from here, no way. Because the God who has brought us this far is not going to let us go. And the spirit that pointed Simeon to Jesus 2,000 years ago is still alive and well and in our midst and still pointing to the same Savior. And if things are getting darker outside, then the light of Christ can shine all the brighter and more clearly. And if my eyes live to see more of that, I'll bless you, God. And if they don't live to see much of that, I'll bless you, God. Personally, I'm super hopeful about what's possible in the next year. Super hopeful. Because even though my eyes don't see in the physical realm the way Simeon's did, I think through the Holy Spirit my eyes really do see and spiritually perceive just enough to trust that God can still do amazing things, even in our lifetime. One of the signs that he will is right in front of us. God's coming kingdom is not built on our effort, our clever ideas, the quality of our music, the quality of our sermons, the quality of our ministry, how many people we send out on fifth Sunday to serve. Like, hopefully there's a lot of good in all of those things, but the sign right in front of us is that Jesus has shed his precious blood and given his body to give us all the strength and nourishment and truth that we need to obey him for the next step along the road. Do you have enough faith to believe that? That God will not only show you Christ, not only invite you to obediently follow the difficult pathway of discipleship, but also strengthen you for the journey ahead. I'm going to pray for us, leave a moment of silence, then Pastor Jeff is going to lead us into the sacrament. Lord God, with Simeon, many of this room thank you that our eyes, or at least the eyes of our heart, have seen Jesus. Your Spirit has done that for us. And Lord, we hear the difficult words that came to Mary and the rest of us through him, that walking after Jesus will not just be one easy thing, one happy song after another, but there will be challenges and swords and conflicts both within and without. And Lord, however you shepherd our path as our good shepherd, we trust you that you're with us every step of the way that the same spirit that reveals your presence will continue to reveal more of your, that presence and power. And we trust that at your table today, you will give us more grace 
the grace we need to walk boldly into a new year. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.